You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Tanvir Ahmed is a Bangladeshi-born psychiatrist, journalist and television presenter. He sees a broad range of patients, including some of the most disadvantaged in our community, often visiting clients in jail for court assessments. Author of two best-selling books, he lives in Sydney with his wife and two daughters. Tanvir, welcome to Five of My Life. Absolute pleasure, Nigel. I'm really looking forward to this, mate. We are going on a journey throughout the 90s. Your first three choices are all in the 1990s, and we're going to do them in reverse order. We're going to start at the end of the decade and work our way back to the start of the decade. And the first choice on Five My Life is always the film. And you have chosen the Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore rom-com classic, The Wedding Singer. Justify yourself, mate. (laughs) Now, look, I I wouldn't say I'm an Adam Sandler fanatic. Most of the movies he's done, I wouldn't say I'm a big fan of. Now, the story behind this movie is that I ended up watching this probably, I think it was eight or nine times over one particular weekend. And this weekend I was stuck in a cabin in remote, Northern Territory is already remote. And I was in a remote part of the Northern Territory. It was a town called Elliot. This is in the late 1990s. Now this town of Elliot had about a population of about a couple of hundred people. It was then regarded as the most violent place in the Northern Territory. Uh, there were a handful of, you know, there was policemen, there was a nurse, and as part of a nurse, I was a medical student at the time, I was in my final year in medicine, and this was a relatively new program that the government, federal government was subsidising, where they would send you uh, to the Northern Territory on an Aboriginal community for between, sort of, I think it was six to eight weeks, and I think I spent uh, the full two months, and six weeks of that was in this town of Elliot. And you effectively become the doctor, yet even though you're not quite qualified, you know, you're on the verge of being qualified, admittedly. It was me and a nurse, I think it was a South African nurse, and we were basically running the show for this um, tiny community. Having spent most of my life in Sydney, it it was really something being transported to a part of Australia that felt really foreign. It felt like a different country yet you were, you were very much still in Australia. It was virtually the desert. You were on the edge of the Sturt Highway. There was some Dutch traveller, you know, running the pub. Uh, there were a few others. There was, I think there was a priest. What was extraordinary about this, the, what I was able to do in that community, what I was allowed to do as a medical student was extraordinary. For example, in the first week, I was on a flight to an even more remote facility with about... 20, 30 people, we were there delivering a baby on the flying doctor's flight. And this was a, it was probably an Aboriginal girl. We're talking probably, I'm guessing she would have been 14 or 15. Delivering right. a baby 
in the air? It was on the plane. As in, we were taking her back to Tennant Creek Hospital, but she was delivering. She was essentially having a stillbirth or something along those lines. Uh, From memory, I don't think the baby survived, but this was one one of my first key experiences while at this place. And then soon afterwards, days later... Um, uh, you know they have payday, etc. And there's a lot of there's a lot of dry communities in Northern Trinity, but this wasn't one of them. So you really got a sense of this mix of, I guess, welfare dependence, alcoholism, and outright violence. And I remember one night spending the whole night stitching up injuries, sort of head injuries, you know, bleeding, etc. But at the same time, these real bouts of sort of humanity and almost humour, and really forming sort of connections with. Very different Aboriginals than I'd ever met, you know, certainly in, in Sydney. And I remember, you know, one of the first nights where someone was sort of half drunk, had a relatively minor injury, and he turned around and looked at me and go, you got any blackfella in your mate? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he re- you could tell I was South Asian and probably not part Aboriginal, but he thought he'd throw it in my way anyway. But there was a real affection about it. So, look, to be honest, this was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my university studies, of my medical training. And during this, I remember one weekend, I think everyone had gone off to some sort of AFL game, the entire town. And, but I was still expected to stay. I think I, you know, I had to be on call or something. I can't remember what it was. And I was terribly disappointed that I wasn't off at this um, kind of venture that the rest of the town had moved to. And I was stuck in a cabin. And I think there were two... There was. Absolutely nothing for me to do. Remember, this pre-internet, right? Now, I think I'd already read a, a book or something and I was just hanging around and there were two movies to watch, I think. I think one of them was Gone with the Wind and the other one was The Wedding Singer. Wow. And I remember, and t- I had seen The Wedding Singer once then and, and enjoyed it. I remember that weekend, I think I ended up watching. There'd be periods where I'd be looking for something to do. And I think it was, I think this might have been a long weekend. It was at least two, two days, two possibly three days. And I think I watched that movie. I would say seven or eight times at least, and most of the time probably enjoyed it. <laughs> so I, I, I love it on Five My Life, where a a choice exactly like that story leads to a story that's not actually about the item itself. It's about the memory that the item uh, evokes. I, I did my research on Elliot. I mean, it is tiny and it is remote. Yet it's it it's got. Uh, from from the things that I could find out on on the internet now, it's got like a disproportionate amount of utilities. It seems like it's got a pub, it's got a garage. It, I mean, it, it seems to it, it's unbelievably small, but it's got it, it, almost like a, a postman pat town. It's got one of everything. Is that is that fair? I think it is something of a tra- if not a transit town, but because it's quite near the big highway, right? It's between the two key towns, sort of Tennant Creek, and I think it's near Catherine. And even though it's a tiny town. I think a lot of people stop at the petrol station, fill up, and they might have a drink at the pub, <laughs> right? So hence it does seem to have these facilities. But I think many of these Aboriginal towns there do seem to have their their little, you know, they'll have the pub, there'll be a tiny school, and they'll be serviced. So that's where it's a good, it's a good point to, to Australia and how difficult it is to administer Australia when you have such a wide dispersion of people, yet they still need services, and often the market or traditional traditional ways of delivering it can't they just can't do it. Yeah. So you have to kind of hold up many of these towns which are in completely 
impractical places sometimes. And, and how did that experience at, at a at, at the start of your career uh, inform, if at all, your, your attitude towards your your um, profession that you've successfully pursued for the last decade or so? Look, it certainly gave me an attraction to what might be called either remote work or edgy work. And there was, I, I didn't necessarily like pursue that. For example, I think after something like that, I did consider things like Medicine Sans Frontier, where, you know, there, a lot of lot of medical students would have that dream, you know, end up in Afghanistan or or you're in the Congo. And I've had a handful of friends who have been able to do that. But but circumstances didn't really allow for, for that to happen. But I guess there's almost a component of the foreign correspondent in medical form in this type of role where where you're very thoroughly in such a foreign place, you're you're out of your depth, you're out of your comfort zone. You learn a lot about yourself. It was very challenging. I realised because I was quite imp- one really good thing about it for me is I've always been relatively impractical and not necessarily that great with my hands, etc. So I didn't really think of surgery as a career. But after this experience, I did genuinely consider it because I was delivering babies, I was stitching up uh, head wounds, etc. So I know it gave me a huge amount of confidence having, you know, just before you start internship and throw yourself into the hospital system. I remember that I really felt like, oh, you know what? I I think I can actually be a doctor. So in terms of hardening oneself and readying oneself to for this type of job uh, and just the world beyond, I think it was a very formative experience professionally and personally. And what was the what was the the, the uni that sent you there? Sydney University. Sydney, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. And I think just the Aboriginal. It did give me a real appreciation of just the breadth and complexity of, I guess, what might be called the Aboriginal situation, if you like, and just the sheer variety. While I was there, you saw you saw a huge variety in the types of Aboriginal communities. Like I visited a friend up towards I think it was Kings Canyon, and they were an artistic community. They were a dry community. Then you're in Tennant Creek, which is there, a relatively significant hospital. I remember being part of a go-kart Grand Prix, which is like a, which is like an event there. It has a special name, which I should remember. And so I, I, I really fell in love with the Northern Territory. As a Sydney side, I wasn't terribly different from the German tourists, etc. Like I was essentially similar. You know, you've got you've got Crocs, you've got the you've got the tropical sort of feel of the lake. Then you've got the desert, and then you've got this extraordinary the landscape. There was a special thing about even going to Kings Canyon and Ayers Rock, you do feel the power of that and you get that sense of land as a type of spirituality, which I think is, if not uniquely Australian, it's very much tied to being Australian, that rugged frontier. We're moving uh, four years earlier, from 1998 to 1994, for your second choice. I, I'm a bit conflicted by this. I, we're very non-judgmental on Five of My Life, uh, but I do watch all the films and read all the books, etc., etc. You've chosen John Birmingham's He Died with a Falafel in His Hand. What a great title uh, about basically share house uh, hijinks. Um, tell us about that. The reason I love this book, we're just talking about me about to graduate, it was possibly a year later when I had probably essentially first time I'd moved out properly and was in a share house. A, I found it enormously funny. I thought it was just a brilliant concept. Um, this period of your life where you're neither, you're not quite an adult, you're sort of just burgeoning into professional life. Um, uh, yet you're not at high school, you're kind of trying to find, and you're seeing such a variety of people. I thought that book with all its dubious characters, it was like this, 
parade of of um, of Sydney. I, th- I can't remember if it was set in Sydney or Brisbane at that that, that book. I think it was might have been in Brisbane. It's, it's, it was partly in Sydney. I yes, think. three different cities. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. So I just found the just it the way it exposed and illustrated the absurdity of sharehouse living. Now that's not the experience I had. I was probably I was I was I was sharing with two other women. One was a first second year lawyer, and she'd just moved down from the Gold Coast. Um, Melissa, another another girl was Diana, and she was a IT specialist, and she had a Portuguese background. Grew up here, but we actually had just a really fun household. And I guess I remember the time one internship as a doctor is is really a seminal year. Uh, where you're working very long hours. You know, it's almost like the military. You're doing night shifts and you're... I remember d- developing something of a sort of a low-level Scotch whiskey problem around that time, <laughs> sitting out on the kind of patio of this household, drinking Scotch, thinking about my day. And it was also the period through the share house and it was through uh, one, of the, one of my uh, housemates where I also met my future wife. Ah. So we met through, and she was a lawyer too, and had just graduated. So just a very exciting time where we were meeting lots of people. We would have a few, you know, you'd have relatively wild parties, probably not in the John Birmingham style, who died with a flaffle where there's people kind of with syringes and, <laughs> and people dying, but not quite at that level. But that's why I think this book, and John Birmingham, who I've met since, is is um, I think he's just a great Australian character who's able to bring this really laconic Australian humour, but give it that literary edge. And I think this was a book that really announced him as just one of the, the great Australian authors. Um, and I associate very much with a, with a special time of my life. It, it's interesting uh, hearing you talk about that sort of transitional stage, because it, it absolutely, in, in my life as well, in London, where you are in a share house, you're never going to have a time probably ever again in your life where you're living with sort of five or six other adults that you aren't married to or haven't uh, you know sired as 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 a parent you you go it's it's a it's quite a lovely thing so you're not at school you're not at uni where we're living in it's almost better the more rubbish the accommodation <laughs> so, so, so some of the places and, and this wonderful uh sort of comedic territory are you familiar with the uk tv series men behaving badly yes i am yeah, yeah and it's it's that vibe it's just hilarious i mean cooking dinner parties with that. There, are, there are you're right there aren't that many settings where you just thrust in with people who you don't necessarily have any clear connection with you know public transport is a classic one and i know a lot of artists and theater writers they like public transport as a setting because people from very different backgrounds are thrust together, but you're not interacting at a deeper level. Where share houses are almost the equivalent of that, where you're just thrust together with some people, and you've just got a cursory kind of assessment sometimes. I mean, I was very lucky in, in my setting, but it could go very badly. And I think it's especially exciting potentially in global cities, like places like Sydney or London, where you get such a variety of people. Yeah. But I do think they're, they're ripe for um uh, for drama and uh, and stories, so they're they're perf- they're great for literature. T- tell me uh, how you met your wife and and the courtship. How did that go? I met her through uh, two friends, actually, both of them doing law. So one was this um, the housemate I talk about, and the other was a Bangladeshi friend of mine. And I, I, to be honest, in some ways we were actually set up, which right. is curious in a 
indirect way, both these friends of mine, and this is where uh, it gave me, um, I guess, a, an affection for the setup, so to speak, because your friends do, I think, c- can potentially be good judges. I know they both thought that we would potentially be a good match in that we probably had, I'd probably argue, we've got to, you know, do it just sort of very much value good humour. So she's certainly very funny, obviously intelligent. She came from a, I guess she had the English, Ukrainian, it's a bit slight sort of ethnic background as well. Um, and, and she grew up in Western Sydney, so she went to a public school. I, I also grew up in Western Sydney. So well, I guess we're both in sort of elite professional circles, both from Western Sydney, bit of this sort of ethnic background, and we, and we both loved to laugh and had, had, I think, a sharp sense of humour. And uh, I think that brought us together. We hit it off very quickly, and I do attribute our um, getting together. And she, would, I, she would say our courtship began on a tennis court where I turned up to a tennis game and a, couple, a few other, Melissa, a few others were there. And she remembered just thinking that I was this over, like overly competitive, over-the-top performer on this sort of park tennis game. And she remembered thinking, go, why is this guy even here? It didn't quite, it didn't, didn't quite make sense. But, I, yeah, there, there was a reason for me being there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how long have you been married? Oh, I, I don't, I, we got married, I think, 2006, so it's, I guess, just over 15 years. But we got together there, which was 2001 or 2000, I think. It was soon after the Sydney Olympics, I think, so it would have been 2001. So I guess we've been together for over 20 years now. To your third choice, which is always the song on Five My Life, and we add all the song choices to the Five My Life Spotify playlist. You have chosen a sensational song. It is the lead single from the Counting Crows debut album, August and Everything After. It's Mr. Jones. And the thing that I would say about the song, which I just adore, it's been downloaded hundreds of millions of times on YouTube because there's an authenticity to this song that it's just so obvious. And it's based on him with his friend, Mr. Jones, Marty Jones, in a bar watching Chris Isaac's drummer chatting up good-looking women with (laughs) confidence and flair, thinking... I wish I could do that. Yeah. Me and Mr. Joe. And then he, you write it, you perform it, and forever and a day, that piece of beautifulness that, that resonates, if you are like I am, I wouldn't dare suggest you are, but, you know, average-looking pudding, you know, you go, bloody hell, there's Brad Pitt chatting up all the nice-looking the nice looking women. Anyway, um, so thank you for choosing, Mr. Jones. Um, tell us your story. Well, it's funny you tell that story, and I've looked it up since too, but at the time when I really liked the song and what it evoked... I didn't necessarily know the background to it. Yet, there's considerable overlaps to exactly what background you said. Because when I was travelling, so again, the rite of passage as an Australian, you take time off, you travel, and I'd taken almost six months off and I was travelling through Europe. And as part of that, I think this was in southern Spain and Portugal, and I'd taken a good month off because I'd sort of got sick of travelling and I wanted to just sit for a little bit. And I was doing a Spanish course in Seville in the southern Spain, and I was partly attracted to that area because part of my background, I was born in Bangladesh, 
grew up in Australia, but we have an Islamic background. But I was not from a terribly religious family. But I found this area of Europe just stunningly interesting. A, it's beautiful, and, and Spain is beautiful and, and with all its history. But this area had that really interesting uh, Islamic history, had these all these sort of famous mosques, and they basically ruled the Moors, etc. They basically ruled that region. And the, just the beauty of some of the architecture, and, and there was something quite unique that I'd never felt before, just being in that environment and just spending a little bit of time there. And also things like I fell in love with the art form of flamenco. Ah, okay. I thought it was just stunning. And and when I read the history of that, where it had overlaps with India and the, the Punjab and that and then this links with gypsy culture and this these links with sort of angry feeling kind of there was a almost a rage, a sense of a feeling aggrieved, but it came out in this extraordinary art form. And I thought it was the combination of flamenco guitar and some of the dancing. I'd, I thought it was one of the most powerful pieces of performances that I'd ever been exposed to. And part of the reason Mr. Jones also connected, not only does he mention flamenco, etc. I remember being on the seaside and I partly actually went to this area because I was pursuing a, a love interest who was, who was a German. We'd become quite good friends. And I, my impression was she was keen on me, right? <laughs> Yet, but when I had gone, gone there, it turned out she had either fallen or had a pre-existing love interest who was a flamenco guitarist, this Spanish guy, and I could not compete. So in some ways, what you've just talked about in, that, in, the, in the song, where I was kind of, you know, coveting and uh, feeling a little bit um, left out, yet still kind of admiring my environment and and all that there's a there's that that there's that the the emotional combination uh that the song brings uh i think perfectly encapsulated that period that's brilliant unrequited lust <laughs> I, I i have to um agree with you about flamenco I, I went one of the funniest nights uh i can remember is i went to the opera house with my wife and uh mate liam to see flamenco not what i would normally do. I mean, it's the only flamenco performance I've ever seen in my life. But a the the trousers and the shirt of the, it's such a confident peacock sort of stance, and and that the the stamping stroke tap dancing thing and the guy. So all of it, you're just absolutely entranced. But the guy, I promise you, Tamir, he started playing his teeth, right? <laughs> absolutely fantastic. So in in the middle of his, you know, thing, he was, you know, thumping his chest, and they went. Oh wow! I can see it. I can totally see it. <laughs> and it, it was great. It, it, it wasn't gratuitous. It was like in the moment. Of, I'm, you know, playing my guitar, thumping my chest. Hey, why not? I'm going to play my. It's teeth. an alternative to tap dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love flamenco. Your fourth choice is uh, the place, and you didn't give me a an actual name of your father's village in Bangladesh, but I'd really like you to uh, tell us where it is, name it, describe it, and then tell your story. Sure. So my father's village is uh, what is now Bangladesh, but in the past would have been East Pakistan, and before that, sort of India. Uh, it's called Bijoy Rampur, so B-I-J-O-Y uh, Rampur, which essentially is just a reference to a village in a particular region. It, the district is in Jashore, and that's a relatively famous district because the British East India Company had quite significant, if not headquarters, they had significant presence there in the past. Uh, and that is part of Bang what is now Bangladesh, and it borders India. So in fact, where my 
both my parents have village their their villages, which are now more like sort of steadily becoming district towns as they urbanise. It they're almost right on the what is now the Indian border, and that's very significant because during partition and those sort of periods and and further wars, nineteen seventy one when there was a you know, I guess a Pakistan civil war which led to the split of the country and then when what and Bangladesh uh, independence, that region that border was. You know, there was a lot going on there, you know, huge migration flows, you know, military or et cetera. So it's quite a significant part of the country and there's a whole deal of history. And the village I refer to is basically my father's village. And I think I'd visited, so I was born in Bangladesh. I was born sort of what, what mid-70s, mid-1970s, but I came at age six. So I, don't, I wouldn't say I have a strong memory of being a child. They have some fleeting memories and we, I think we'd gone once before, maybe when I was 10 or 11, and we went again in my late teens, or, or I think I was 16, 17, sort of towards the end of high school. And I do remember that's exactly the time period where you really kind of, you know, it's all about identity, who the hell am I? And all of that is complicated when you're from a, quite a traditional ethnic background. You're from a culture and tradition very different to the West in a way. And I think it's quite challenging growing up when you're in almost conflicted sort of backgrounds. And this is such a deep tradition. And I, in some ways, I felt a bit foreign to it, I would say. You grow up, I did learn the language, my language, my Bengali, if you like, which is one of the world's most spoken languages. I think it's number eight or nine in the world in terms of sheer numbers of people who speak it. was okay. It wasn't too bad. But I, you know, but I had very little link to the wider cultural dimension. And, and I'd also say I don't think I had a deeper understanding of my parents, exactly where they're from and that kind of stuff. And I do remember when I went uh, to the village when I was slightly older, and I guess, you know, you're just a bit more mature. I remember that just being quite profound, getting a real sense of, wow, like this is my sort of origin story. You're seeing sort of cousins and people who really look like you and and, and you're comparing yourself and, and you're seeing your father in context. Yes. So getting a real sense, like, oh, this is where he's from and just really seeing how he's developed. And I remember it just gave, you know, just all that stuff around identity and where you're really from and... Real beautiful too, like in a real rural sort of area, very gorgeous. But I, it was also around that time I got a sense how connected we were. In because my father, right throughout, and this is very common with you know, you'd say in Britain, all the Pakistani Indians and Bangladeshi, and, and lots of ethnic groups would do the same. He was funneling almost a quarter of his income to this village, essentially propping, you know, supporting them over almost a decade. And I also realised that many of the conflicts in our household were around these sort of tensions. Right. You know, how much money goes back here, how much money stays in our household. And I, I really got that sense of how kind of inextricably connected we were. And he was almost running a mini kind of extension. It's almost, it was almost a mini welfare state, if you like, out, out, out in Bangladesh. But I got a real sense of my own history. And I sort of always think of it, when I see patients sometimes, it's such a stark contrast to Western life. I almost saw modernity. I'd almost got new insights into that in our visits back there every three or four years. We'd go back and suddenly there's highways. Another four years, you know, the internet's coming in or there's shopping malls. You got a real sense of the developing world becoming rapidly developed. So I, I felt like it's been, you know, I'm a writer too, I'm a columnist. I feel like a lot of bigger ideas about how the world's changing, how th things are affecting the world, how how poor countries are developing and what's the meaning of that, what are the pros, cons, urbanisation, all of these sort of things. I often think of my father's village as a kind of 
test case as a bit of a case study. But not only that, even when I see patients, because you think one of the big, if not crises, one of the things about Western life is the, the dissolution of clan, family, tradition to an extent, right? So we used to exist in clans and families. You have these tight-knit traditions. And many problems you see in mental health, as me as a psychiatrist, will overlap with that. Right. Right? So I often see patients and think, okay, what would they be like if they were in my father's village? Like, what would be different? You know, thinking of the pros and cons. And even that sometimes I feel like gives me insights into their current condition and their state um, in, when, when they're presenting to me. Are you saying that if there are more structures, potentially you have less mental health problems presented so it's- oh you look it's more that um well you what do you lose when you lose a lot of these sort of you know extended families or tradition tight-knit things or a role you know a good example is you know say the elderly here where many of them just sort of live alone and they're quite lonely but they lack social roles one of the most interesting things in these environments is right to your deathbed you'll they'll have a social role in, and, in the bangladeshi culture yeah i mean yeah. look most i mean these are these aren't unique clan structures, you know, that it's just basically how we all used to live. Yeah. But also seeing how rapid change affects those because all the same forces that have affected Western life, you know, industrial revolution, technology, that's all happening in these places and it's happening at an even faster rate than it happened to us. It might have happened over decades and a century here, but places like China or India and Bangladesh, it's happening in decades. Yeah. So it's... I feel like I get little insights into that when I when I visit relatives or or get a sense of their experience. And what about your your kids' identity? They might be too young to be you have this conversation, but but how do they identify? How important is is Bangladesh and, and dad's root, mum and dad's roots? I mean, does it matter at all, or do they? Yeah, absolutely matters. Yeah, and I was very, I guess, if not aggressive, you know. For example, my wife jokes about that because she's been to Bangladesh three times. She said, "I've been to Bangladesh more than." many of your friends from there, you know, and she's been to my parents' village. I remember when we got married, we went back there and almost a thousand people turned up to see her. And the joke was, you know, it was like Lady Diana visited or something, you know, this white woman coming to the village. It wouldn't be as novel now, but it certainly was, you know, 15 odd years ago. So it's very important. Yeah. And I've, we've taken our kids back, back there. You know, my older daughter's been there twice. And I think it is even recently, because my wife has part Ukrainian heritage, so it's very interesting during the most recent Russia-Ukraine um, sort of war, even my children, especially my older one, sort of, she was saying how oh, I don't really feel that connected to the Ukraine side, right? And the war, you know, she's often been asked about it, and she felt she should. I guess she was saying, I do feel quite connected to my Bangladeshi side, you know, we... You know, we're always seeing my, 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 thankfully, my parents are still alive and, and they do, they are genuinely connected to that. You know, they've been to Bangladesh, they've been to the village. They certainly can't speak. I think that's a bridge too far. But it was interesting during this Russia-Ukraine war where that became, she generally felt like, oh, that is a part of my heritage, but I'm not terribly connected to that. Now, now given your, your profession and uh, working in the areas, both geographically and, and professionally that you do, is... What's your take on how good or not Australia is uh, as a country welcoming disparate groups? Yeah, look, I think it's a wonderful question, Nigel. And I would argue I think we're very good. I think we get unfairly maligned. It's certainly not perfect, but you look at a lot of the statistics. I mean, A, we have huge rates of migration. The most recent census showed in terms of overseas-born people, we actually outrank places like Canada, Britain, US. So 
we're actually probably just about the most diverse Western country. One stat I like to um, reel off is mixed marriage rates here are higher than just about any Western country. I mean, look, we are very picky with migrants. It's not easy to be in Australia, to, to get in and become citizenship. So we do tend to pick skilled migrants who, you know, my parents, even though they grew up in villages, they're educated. You know, they my father's an actuary, my mother was a teacher. I think we do tend to pick the cream of migrants around the world, which generally means they tend to do well in Australia. So we have high rates of social mobility. I mean, look, I've been like, I think I've had extraordinary opportunities in terms of education, social mobility. So I wouldn't say I felt maligned or mistreated. Yes, people make racial jokes, etc. But in terms of really being treated differently or feeling like I haven't had opportunities, at least in my case, that hasn't been significant. I do think a lot of what's called racism in Australia is that Australians are quite blunt, direct, and sometimes, and their attitudes to hierarchy and authority are quite different. I often tell this story where even as a junior doctor, seeing how um, an English doctor I remember seeing complain that how nurses here would ask him to photocopy stuff. And they were like, this would never happen in the NHS, like ridiculous. And he, he would put it down to the egalitarian sort of ethos. And he was, he was sort of mocking that. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But he thought it was both good and bad, but he liked aspects of it. Whereas an Indian doctor, an overseas Indian doctor, might see that in racial terms. Right. Might see that, oh, you've, you're, you're, you've done that with a racial edge, you're kind of looking down on me and, and asking me to photocopy, when it's probably got more to do with attitudes to authority, hierarchy, that kind of stuff. So that's an example where I think what is, a lot of what is perceived as racism, I think the att- intention is rarely so. I'll tell you a story which, um, gosh, yeah. but I hope this doesn't offend anybody, and, and please take it in the spirit in which it's intended. I think sometimes people, how can I say this, can not understand true historical context. So, so I don't know, Shakespeare was probably a sexist uh, with today's standards. I mean, you, you know, although hopefully he was nice to his wife. So this is my, my granny. I'll never forget this. And, I, and I'm looking at a lovely Bangladeshi gentleman telling him this story. I can't blame up to this story. Where <laughs> Granny Vi, she was, you, you know, 80, falling to pieces, <laughs> went to hospital. And, and you go, how, you know, how was that, you know, Grant? And she was the nicest woman you could ever meet. She thought every time a baby cried, it proved that God existed. Every time, that, you know, she never, ever said a bad word about anyone. I mean, she just never would. I mean, that's, so she is the loveliest soul. But I go, how was, how was uh, hospital gran? And she goes, yeah, you know, it was, it, it, you know, yeah, it, it, it was all right. Uh, it was an Indian doctor, surprisingly good. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I can imagine, uh, I, mean, I mean, you know, if, if, if that was said by a 23-year-old now in Sydney, we, what on earth are you talking about? That's, that's an outrageous thing to say. But yeah. Granny Vi, it, it probably was the first Indian doctor in Devon. Yeah. And she meant it as a fucking compliment. Yeah. yeah now, exactly. if you deconstruct it, it's how, why wouldn't he be good, Granny? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so. so no, I agree. I think, and there is a generational component. You know, often, often that um, thing when people get upset, so when they're asked, where are you from or something? Yeah. Which is, I think, for a certain generation, I, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable. Like, you well, know. Well, well, so this is, I mean, again, I, I know you're taking this in the right spirit, Biz. I think it's the language that's clumsy because sometimes when an older person says to someone who hasn't got the same 
bloody skin colour is them. Where are you from? And then the person says, it's ripe for comedy. The person says Manchester. And you go, no, 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 where are you from? Manchester, no, 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 where are you from? You go, hold on. You know, what she actually wants to say is, where did you originally... What's your heritage? Yeah. That's right. So if I met someone who had a broad Irish accent and said, where are you from? And they go Campbelldown. I go, no, no, where are you from? They go Campbelldown. You know, you go, oh. what, I, what I should have said to the start with is, where does your Irish accent originate from? Is it Dublin? Is it Cork? And that's just curious. Just curiosity. And I would say what I've noticed in the last decade is almost the opposite, where I would get asked where I'm from and I'm thinking they're interested in my heritage. And right. I might say, oh, I'm from Bangladesh. And they're like, no, no, like, no, where, where do you live? <laughs> the they other way around. Want, they where are you from know. in Sydney? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I've actually seen that change where I actually think often now, in, across all generations, people are less likely to ask you about your heritage straight away. Yeah. And maybe because of these sensitivities. But I don't think it's entirely that. No. I think that many people do see past it. What, what a wonderful progress. Isn't that fantastic? So. Where you're saying, no, this village. No, no, mate. Where? Well, I would say, and you would probably see it in my kids too. I mean, we go back to my kids. It is interesting seeing mixed children and just thinking about how they see themselves, right? And I look at my children, and my impression is they sort of see themselves as white, right, but with darker skin, but they can play it off. They can still sort of, they'll make jokes about white people. So they kind of swing both ways. But I definitely see one of the most beautiful things, and I'm sure this is the case in London and across other Western multicultural cities, I do think they barely see ethnicity. I, I cannot believe you said that because yeah. cause we've been in Australia for 21 years, but um, in, in London, in a, in a very mixed ethnic area of London, and the primary school, the government primary school, by far the minority was, was you know, I'm, I'm sort of classic up and down white bread the phrase that you've just used i'm so glad he said that is i genuinely think my kids are colorblind i mean it's, it's just the names of the boys and girls in their class full stop so that's where i would say places like australia britain and say canada a lot a lot of the places the places where we talk most about racism or fret about being racist again i don't i don't argue that it's perfect but are probably the least racist most tolerant places in human history, right? And I think Sydney is one of those, frankly. Having said that, when I see some problems, someone who often has to deal with social problems, that can also go too far yep. where sometimes the things linked to culture and ethnicity are ways into help groups or, or fix yep. problems. And sometimes we steer to, you know, I guess what's called political correctness. So that's the other end of that. And I don't think that's as big a problem as we make it out to be sometimes, Um but I guess that's the other extreme of that. So we shouldn't be completely patting ourselves on, no, no. on the back. No. Yeah. <laughs> I have to. Are you um, familiar with Ali G, the comedian? Of course. It's almost too painful to watch, but <laughs> there's a skit where he is complaining to a British political. I mean, I don't know how he does this and stay in character. I, 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 it's just so embarrassing. But where he is uh, complaining to a British Bobby, and, and he's being asked to really politely to move on. And he says to the policeman, is it, is it because, because I'm black? I'm black? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the poor bloke, he just has no idea, <laughs> no idea what to do. Just, yeah. Your last choice on Five of My Life, The Possession. Um, wow. We've never had one of these before, mate. It is a neck traction device. <laughs> uh, describe it. And, and are you wearing it now? <laughs> no. No. So look, it is an unusual choice, but... 
But if I was asked about an actual possession, the reason is, so in my late 30s, so it's almost a decade ago now, I suffered quite a serious neck injury. Uh, had a how, disc injury. How? Look, to me, I think it was a wear and tear, possibly from trying to bowl quick as a weedy South Asian man and spending almost 20 years of my life trying to be a fast bowler. But basically it clicked and I started feeling sort of pains down my shoulders and arms. And for, for a period, I was almost immobilised for, you know, almost a month or so. And at that stage, it seemed that I would need to have an operation. I'm, look, I'm hardly the first person that needed this type of operation. But thankfully, I was able to avoid it with, you know, a whole range of, you know, physio, etc. All the things, injections. But since then, pretty much since then, I would say my life has been fundamentally changed. Because I have to be in constant routines to make sure my neck pain is okay, Right. So, for example, so it's led me to all these new habits, one of which is swimming. Now, I grew up and I could barely swim, right? But after my neck injury, it became a necessity. So I started swimming with a snorkel. I remember my surgeon said, said, well, you know what? Who cares? I mean, one, for your neck, it's better. And if you can't swim very well, just put a snorkel on, right? And th- that helped me. So suddenly I was almost a daily swimmer. And to this day, and we talked about my, the, my father's village being a critical place, if I had to choose another one, it would be the local swimming pool, Dremoyne Swimming Pool, which is beautiful, one of the oldest oh, pools. Oh, the one on the harbour? And Yeah, gorgeous yeah, harbour, water park. So I'm there probably four times a week, and uh, the day it opens, it's shut through winter. I remember September the 1st, I feel like, is a really special day where I start in the pool. But as part of my neck, as part of sustaining my neck, this neck traction device was another one, where I stuck on the side of my bedroom door, and I put, I, I sort of do the traction every night before sleep. Otherwise, my neck's quite tight and stiff and just allows me to sleep better. But I also take this device with me when I go on holidays, right? And, and it's the bane of my wife's life. She's like, what the hell? You got it in the suitcase, probably takes up half a kilo, adds to the weight. And all, people always look at it suspiciously. They're like, it's like Guant- you know, sometimes it looks like I'm in Guantanamo Bay, like it's a torture device or <laughs> what on earth is happening? Or they, do they have it especially exciting sex life but none of those are true <laughs> but it is a point to how fundamentally i'd have to change my routines and i do get quite anxious without it so sometimes probably less so now but i remember the first five years after this i'd become quite anxious if i'd forgotten to pack it uh, but i think it was a it but it also signals a shift in just life stages so i, I think at a more fundamental level it was very much a shift into middle age and just feeling a little bit more vulnerable, and suddenly you don't have that immortality of youth. And I do feel like I've been much more cautious ever since. I'm so glad uh, that this is where you are going with that choice, because I I want to ask you from your professional uh, career, so that's something that you've had to deal with personally that's uh, in buggerance. You'd rather not have to wear a neck device and and do all those things, but, but you have to. How, how long have you been practising as a psychiatrist? 11, 12 years, yeah. Okay. Do you feel there is a trend towards people being less resilient or is that just a media beat-up? And the reason I ask that is every now and then, and, and you know, I've got four kids and, and they are, I mean, love them to the ends of the earth and, and never caused any problems. Sometimes I see people who I feel from an unqualified point of view are medicalizing personality. You, you, so, so just pretend you said to me, I've got to wear a bloody neck brace and do these things um, and it's a pain in the ass. 
I go, correct diagnosis, pain in the arse. Not, and then invent some syndrome. It's not a trauma. Neck brace, depression, trauma syndrome. I go, it's a pain in the ass. Anyway, so so that's my, uh, you know, amateur bias that maybe that's happening. And and as a professional, you know, please contradict me. It's something I've thought about deeply. We are in times of major social upheaval, right? So it's part of that. And we talked a bit about, you know, my parents' village. So we've lost all these traditional social structures. We've lost big tent poles. You know, religion is a huge one, you know. So traditionally we would look at suffering and adversity through a certain language. We've increasingly lost that. So often the way we interpret or communicate adversity and suffering now is through a medical one. Right, because right? just because just the language. That's, That's the language, yeah. right? So, But I do think there's good and bad of that. So the good is uh, it's less stigma. It often encourages people to seek help. I think the negatives are it can take away some level of responsibility and it it's not as rich a language sometimes. It's quite a limited language. You know, when you're trying to deal with extraordinary adversity, um, you know, death, or these kind of things, sometimes, you know, say PTSD, for example, that's quite a limited label when you're dealing with extraordinary catastrophe that ultimately just doesn't make sense. You know, the age-old religious philosophical question why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, many of the things that we now call like traumatic syndrome, et cetera, overlap with that dilemma or that those sort of problems. So I do think there's certainly increases in medical, uh, like mental health diagnosis. Much of that is over-diagnosis and over-medicalization. But I do think we're going through a time when people just lose, have lost quite a certain level of foundation. We've got enormous prosperity you know, Western societies like Australia, Australia is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. But we are, we are clamouring sort of for purpose to an extent. Um, and, and maybe there'll be kind of a sort of resolution or something along those lines. But arguably that changes, you know, even now as we're getting, you know, you've got times of war, the economic, suddenly cost of living. And when we have those pressures, um, maybe some of those luxuries um, you know, aren't as pronounced. Uh, but look, overall, I, I do think, and then you throw in technology in it too. So that's another big factor, especially when I see lots of young people. So there's no question there's various trends of social, a degree of social disintegration, decline of languages to describe suffering, particularly religious or metaphysical language. And then you throw in things like technology, social media, which has huge positives. But certainly that seems to be driving certain things, especially among younger people too. So there's no question there are things going on, right? And I'm not, I'm not sure it's as pronounced as sometimes we hear in the media, but I think we're going through some major upheaval uh, politically, culturally, socially, and I think that's reflected sometimes in some of these statistics the upside I'll take from that, which I'm, I'm, thank you for answering that question straight on, is th- that it's good that it legitimises people talking about it. You know, all these things, you know, generationally they wash through. So, so, so I, I, I'm going to cling to that, which is great. You go. So sometimes, you know, on the fringes there might be people who think they're a massive victim that deserve lots of sympathy. When you think, you know, my, your and my great grandmother might say, "Get on with it, mate." Um, but hey. In the main, that could be really positive because they, if they are struggling, then rather than, you know, coping with something alone for thirty years that they shouldn't, they they seek help. So, well, addiction's the classic one, Nigel. So, addiction's a classic one where it's not strictly medical, 
there almost always is a moral and spiritual dimension to it. But crafting it as medical does help people seek help. But when you're actually in that treatment, a good treater, if you limit it to solely medical, and none of the best treatment facilities will ever do that, you know, look at AA, all these places, then it's never enough. Because they're always, most of the problems around mental health or addiction, they usually do have a moral, spiritual component. But if you bring that on too early, it, it can, um, it, it, the stigma is, yeah. is, it stops people from seeking help. So I think that's the logic of it. Last trick question. Who do you want to hear on Five My Life next and why? Yeah, it wasn't a question I was um, ready for. I'm, I'm trying to think who's real. Do they have to be Australian or not? The, the, they have to be alive. <laughs> they have to be alive. <laughs> I'm trying to think who I'm particularly intrigued by at the moment. My favourite writer is Julian Barr, one of my favourite writers, English writer. I, right? I adore Julian Barnes. Right? I, I, I've read every single word right? he has I just written. think he's just a beautiful, beautiful writer and... Most writers I've met are wonderful conversationalists, but some are deep introverts, right? And you struggle to access them when you see them in person. Like I've been to writers' festivals, what have you, and some of my favourite writers in the world, and I've struggled to have, I've struggled to, I mean, maybe it was me, but I've struggled to have the types of conversations that I would have expected to have. Now, that's not always the case. And I've I've heard Julian Barnes on, um, on broadcast, and he's fabulous to listen to. But I think you would be a great person to interview him. His books, they, they He's are... He's a stunning, stunning yeah. writer, yeah. I love it. Uh, Tanvir Amit, thank you so much for coming in and discussing your five choices on Five My Life. Absolute pleasure, Nigel. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.